Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and this is Create the Future, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Now, engineering is often described as problem solving, and in doing so, they have to make things too. And between them, my two guests today know all about what it takes to not only create and engineer something potentially useful as a product, but also how to take that product through to manufacturing. They are Anna Pajewski, a material scientist and research fellow at the Institute of Making at University College London, and Tim Minchel, Professor of Innovation and Head of the Institute for Manufacturing at the University of Cambridge. First of all, Tim, your full title is the Dr. John C. Taylor Professor of Innovation. And there's a connection here with the Royal Academy of Engineering, where we're actually recording the podcast at the moment, isn't there? That's right. So for those who don't know Dr. John C. Taylor, he is this wonderful guy who's had a a huge impact in a way that not many people have seen. And that is, he's the guy who invented the electric kettle switch. So the thing that switches it off when it boils. Sounds like a very simple thing to do, but he developed a little bimetallic blade cut in a certain way and bent in a certain way, and it's absolutely fantastic because it makes sure that every kettle switches off at the right temperature. And There's a second one to do a, a fail-safe issue if you didn't fill it with water. Absolutely brilliant. Every day, I love this figure, one billion people use his technology. Absolutely fantastic. Not only did he design the actual component that switches it off, he rather fantastically also built the machine with his team that makes these devices. So he's done the two things of inventing, protecting, and then also protecting the process of making it as well. That's sort of mother load, isn't it, for an engineer? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> also, he doesn't he have a connection to your... He's endowed your position, effectively, and I know you've got something in your room related to it. Indeed. So I was, uh, through a series of uh, accidents, ended up actually getting this role, which is fantastic. And it was the first endowed professor of innovation at the University of Cambridge. So there will always be now, forevermore, a professor of innovation at Cambridge, which is great. And we're very grateful for Dr. John C. Taylor for that. And it's not contractual, but I do carry with me at every time I'm out one of his kettle switches, which is particularly pointless (laughs) to do on a podcast like this. But I can just show it to my guest, Anna, and you can see that's what it is. And that's the little bimetallic bit there. So again, I can just describe it. It's, It's very, in some ways, very simple, but the execution of it is beautiful and it has to be flawless. It has to work every single time. And that look, just looks like a bit of a black plug with the back open, a little circular, two pieces of metal round, look like bits of jewellery or earrings in it, design because they're actually quite beautiful. They really are. And it's both the, the functionality of it and the, the material itself and the way it's been produced so precisely, it has to work every single time. Anna, I suspect you must look at things very differently to how I might look at things, for instance, as a materials uh, scientist. Were you someone who made things or were you someone who tore things apart? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could always be found tearing apart my toys and my fancy dress costumes and all the rest of it, trying to work out what things were made out of. And what would you describe, you know, materials science? Sometimes you think of chemistry. Um, not always about engineering, or the very title, material science, makes you think, well, it's, uh, it's, it's science but not engineering. So how would you describe material science? 
I usually describe it as the middle of the Venn diagram between chemistry, engineering and physics. And actually, sometimes material scientists have a bit of a sort of personal sort of conundrum about whether they identify as a scientist or an engineer, because we really do sit between both camps. Because the the science of materials is really trying to understand how atoms behave at the very tiniest of levels. And the study of materials is all about looking at what those atoms are up to and seeing how they interact and then understanding how those atoms interacting in certain ways will result in different materials properties like hardness or stiffness or softness or flexibility all these things that we delight in the world around us and in the materials around us and so the material scientist looks at those atoms understands what they're doing and can then engineer new materials to do new and exciting things and what sort of materials do you work with At the moment, I'm working with smart materials, which are materials that have a property. So it could be their shape or maybe their colour. And that changes in response to external stimuli like heat or light or moisture or pressure or pH levels. Um, And so actually this little device that you've brought here is an example of a smart material because those metallic components change shape in response to the stimulus of heat. In what way? How do they change? They just get bigger? Yeah, so the bimetallic strip, it's really an engineered smart material as opposed to being like a pure smart material. But um, the bimetallic strip works because the two metals on either side of the strip have a slightly different coefficient of expansion when they get hot. And so as the material gets hotter, one expands more than the other. But because they're bonded together, it causes the material to fold and bend. Cool, cool. Now, you also work with plastics and fabrics I mean give me an example of a fabric smart material that you're working with so I've been really interested in fabrics with the application of sort of smart clothing and wearable smart materials and the polymers that I've been working on are 3d printable and so I'm combining smart materials with 3d printing in this new technology which has become known as 4d printing the fourth dimension being time sort of materials that move And so I've been 3D printing with a really standard polymer called PLA, which is one of the most common materials with 3D printing. And I've been combining that with fabrics in order to try and make them fold up and bend in different ways in response to the stimulus of heat. Well, before we uh, go on, I want to just play you um, this extract. This is what Lord Brown, who's the chairman of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering Foundation, said when he was asked about the importance of 3D printing. It's a very important advance. So you can make things, customise things for individuals based on scans. So, for example, parts of limbs can be eventually manufactured by 3D printing. You can manufacture things that you couldn't otherwise do by hand, so very complicated pieces for aeroplanes and so forth. And 3D printing does allow you to make things on site that you would otherwise have to make somewhere else. So it brings home some parts of manufacturing. Tim, how important a role does 3D printing play at the Institute of Manufacturing? It's very important. It is one of uh, interesting emerging uh, manufacturing processes, but I think what we've learned is there was a huge amount of hype over it uh, about five years ago. There was this wonderful um, Gartner hype cycle, which tries to map technologies as they emerge, and it has this wonderful five stages. Uh, If I remember these correctly, there's the the trigger, where something is invented or discovered, and people go, oh, that's interesting. Then it shoots up into the uh, peak of inflated expectations, and it plunges 
plunges down into the trough of disillusionment and then you end up heading up to the, what's it called? The plateau of productivity. And it's a a bit contrived. But the basic point is people get very excited by new technologies and the potential of them. And there is huge potential around 3D printing, but it's not going to be in the way that it was portrayed back in those days, where it was, I don't know if you agree, Anna, but the whole um, Star Trek replicator thing, that we wouldn't need factories anymore because everything would be made in our house. It's an eternal disappointment, quite frankly. (laughs) For all of us, I think. (laughs) However, uh, what is interesting, that it is uh, delivering value in interesting ways, and it's maturing, and there are multiple technologies. It's not just a single technology. It has multiple application areas. Just three quick examples would be it's... I guess in its original form, it's for prototyping. It was a prototyping, a speeding up technology. Make a model of the thing you're going to make. There's also applications in tooling to improve an existing process you have. And then finally, to actually produce the object that's going to be used. And I guess that's where you're you're working at, actually producing a thing that someone's going to use, right? And that's very interesting, but it's, it's not... It's quite uh, specific what you can and can't do with it. And so I, th- I know a lot of people working in um, 3D printing in the, the companies that provide them as services, they get quite fed up with people ringing up going, I'd like to make this thing in 3D. And they go, no, 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 you, what do you want to do? And we can help you choose the right material and the right process. But so it's got a bit overhyped. That said, it's a really important technology. And we see it particularly uh, in those two areas of it's, it's a way of producing units of one Customize. So you have the progress towards uh, mass personalization and mass customization. The word mass is a bit optimistic for this at the moment. And then secondly, this issue of you can change where you manufacture. You can, you can shorten the distance between production and consumption, which has lots and lots of benefits. Lord Brown mentioned, you know, the the, uh, printing of of limbs and prosthetics is is a really useful part of it. But there's also a part within biology of 3D printing meshes so that you could grow human cells on it. So I assume there's an example of the technology that does have enormous potential where you're actually using a biological material rather than something that we would consider, um, I don't know what the word would be for it, something that's not a biological, non-biological material, I suppose. Um, Absolutely. And Anna, you're much better positioned to comment on this, but my quick take in it would be there's a whole range of materials and the whole range of processes and the whole range of applications. And it's matching those together, isn't it? And that's what we're really about. Yeah, definitely. I would add that the, the personalization of 3D printing is really what is key because the power of 3D printing comes from our ability to mock up the 3D image as in a computer model first and then send that to the 3D printer. And so this, the computer power of this is phenomenal. And in fact, this afternoon, I was talking to a professor of pharmacology who was talking to me about the future of drug delivery, really. And his vision for the future was that you would be able to have a... Your doctor would send the instructions to the pharmacy. The pharmacy would then 3D print you your personalised medicine. That medicine would have a tailored drug delivery profile, which means the drug would be released in your system in your own personal way that was most beneficial to you. It could contain multiple different drugs if you're someone that takes multiple different drugs in a day. And it's all completely personalised. Gosh, that's great. Maybe if I can just pick up on that point about pharmacology and pharmacies and where it's going, if I may, there's a really interesting thing around that, uh, which is absolutely this fantastic idea that with personalised medicine, you can start to say that the physical manifestation of the drug is made for you, and as you say, delivering in different ways and different uh, times and different compounds, but presents some absolutely terrifying sidelines as well, which is, hang on, we've then got all this data floating around related to individuals and particular chemicals. And uh, again, talking to some colleagues about this, they said, but you get that compound wrong, 
it, sometimes it just doesn't work. But in other cases, you get it slightly wrong, it kills a patient. So there's some really exciting opportunities which are being taken forward. But also there's the sound quietly in the background of many, many lawyers screaming at the moment, going, oh my goodness, can we make sure that this could be delivered safely? So the dream of having, as we have a longer living ageing population, uh, going to hospital is never usually a good thing unless there's a very particular reason to go there. Delivering support at home, the thought you could have, I don't know, a little Nespresso-like machine and you walk downstairs and there is today's pill. You don't need to do anything else. It's there. But the thought that that might go wrong in some way is kind of terrifying. But the benefit you could get if you overcame those problems are huge, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, it's staggering what could be achieved with that. I must say, of course, other coffee machines are available. <laughs> so, Tim, how do you work at the Institute with material scientists like Anna? So I think it picks up on something that Anna said earlier about the fact that what, what's a material scientist, what's an engineer? It's very much blurred, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we absolutely operate in that space. So at the Institute, we've got around 350 people working across uh, technology and management and policy. So we're looking at new manufacturing processes. We're looking at the way in which you develop the right business model for that. And we're looking at the policy context within which all this stuff happens. And what's really interesting, at the, at the, the type of problems I think we're all trying to address do lend themselves to interdisciplinarity, that no one discipline can own the solution to these problems. We still need experts in certain areas, but the real value comes from from material scientists and engineers working together and actually having those interesting conversations, right? We're not quite sure what the solution will be, and you'll know way more about materials than I ever will, and it's about how we have a conversation that sort of leads to a solution to particular problems. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think the collaborative aspect is, is really important, and material scientists and engineers speak similar languages, but not completely the same languages, and those problems can be exacerbated when we're wanting to collaborate with pharmacologists or with designers or with architects all these different fields that could benefit from collaboration we need to be able to talk the same language which can be a real challenge I ought to say here at this point that you know your background is physics and Tim your background is engineering yeah so already we've got a nice little cross disciplinary approach here before we even get to the material sciences indeed and and we're managing to talk to each other which is great can you believe it (laughs) (laughs) do you cover you know tim gave a a sort of you know the sort of things that they they do in terms of uh, manufacturing and cover policy as well do you cover that at the institute of making or is that considered something that's way down the line you know that that's before you get onto making products yeah no definitely not so we have recently opened a new um, plastics hub called the plastics waste innovation hub which is actually yeah (laughs) with um associated with the Institute of Making and the whole purpose of that is to influence policy around plastics in response to the so-called war on plastics this this real spotlight on a certain material that we've seen in the last couple of years so we're absolutely aiming to influence policy as well. Critical isn't it that, that without that sensible dialogue with those involved in policy we avoid we if we do have a sensible dialogue, we avoid some of these crazy decisions that can be made, right? Where Absolutely. someone has says, well, that, that's a popular topic. We should do something about that. Forgetting that the bigger issue is perhaps a bit duller in the background, which is going to take a lot longer to fix. But we should still do it, right? Yeah, definitely. So, Tim, what from your point of view, what makes a successful product? Ah, it's a really good and uh, involved <laughs> question. Multiple ways of answering that. I guess a key thing is it's got to be addressing a need. And that sounds really trite. But if it's just someone saying, here's a thing, 
here's my mousetrap, it's better than anybody else's mousetrap, people will come to me. Well, in some cases it does happen, but it's pretty rare. It's got to be understanding that sense of here is a need that needs addressing. And then having this sort of technology market fit thing. There's a, there's a world out there of th- problems that need solving, and there are a world of possible solutions. It's finding that match. And when you get that match, then you get a chance for a good product or a good process or a good service. But it's pretty rare, and if you agree, Anna, to get it right first time. There's lots of iterations around it and experimentation to get to the right thing. But I, to answer your question, perhaps one way is to say, when it's done badly, it's very much, here is a clever thing, it's what you want versus I'm understanding really what is needed, we can develop different solutions to that. I think that difference between need and want is really interesting. So with the example of plastics, a lot of consumers want alternatives because they have an idea of how they feel about plastics, which is influenced by popular culture, David Attenborough, etc. And actually, the need, according to experts, might be very, very different. Well, I'm going to put some some examples of just purely down on Twitter in terms of what the need might be. Or, or if I said, if you could talk to a material scientist and engineer, what are the sort of things do you think we should do? And I like your opinions. It can be one word. It can be a discussion. It's up to you on each one because you've got a few here. Some are a little bit more realistic than others. Kate Artless Gray, Radio Kate, at Radio Kate, teleporter, a little bit further into the future there. But Stephanie Hill said, room temperature superconductors. I know people are working on it, but we're not there yet. And I've got some nods there. Yes, I've heard of room temperature superconductors. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my area. Mind you, she also said I could do with a Hermione Granger time turner. Oh, so yes. yes, we've got some everything. Claire Ainsworth, a permanent antimicrobial coating that could be sprayed on surfaces like lift buttons or... Ch- underground train handrails to limit the spread of diseases. Now, that's something I would have thought for a material scientist is, is, is quite a good idea. Well, antimicrobial surfaces already exist in very ancient materials. Copper is a fantastic antimicrobial surface, and it's why you see door handles made of brass, which has got copper in it. Um, so you could easily imagine a sort of nano-sized copper particles that can be applied in a spray that would be able to do that. OK, here's another one that goes in the realm of teleporter, but I do like it. Roger Bamforth, a material strong enough to make a space elevator. Nickel, controllable fusion reactors. Nick Howes, a device to convert seawater to breathable oxygen in a suit. Basically gills for scuba divers, so the scuba part becomes no more. Well, that already exists as well. Oh. So electrolyzers are electrochemical devices, which is the opposite of a hydrogen fuel cell. So a hydrogen fuel cell takes hydrogen gas and oxygen and combines it together to make water and electricity. An electrolyzer is the opposite of that. So you take water and it splits it into hydrogen and oxygen with the input of electricity. Staying with swimming at, the, at this point, now I know last year that you swam the English Channel. Correct. Which is pretty impressive. <laughs> is this why you're working on fabrics for a swimsuit? <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Maybe I could have done with a bit more of a boost. <laughs> and what is it you're doing with that, that fabric for a swimsuit? What is it that you want your swimsuit to do? Well, I was interested in being able to tailor the mechanical properties of the fabrics so that we can wear given different stimuli so lots and lots of um, sportswear companies are actually really interested in this as well this idea that we can wear fabrics that are adaptive to our bodies so for example nike and others are producing fabrics that will react to your sweat levels or your temperature levels to become more or less insulating depending on your your body's 
sort of exercise levels. Crossing the channel, that would be a huge boon. Yeah, definitely. However, the channel swimming rules are extremely strict, so you can only have one very standard shaped and material swimming costume. You can only have one pair of goggles and one swimming hat. So, David Bradley, clockwork, solar and lithium batteries really don't cut it, despite awards and Nobels. So basically a, a material that would make a better power source. Well, that's the jackpot, isn't that it? That is the jackpot. <laughs> a device that accurately predicts if a baby's birth will be straightforward so that women aren't enduring days of labour only to end up with an emergency caesarean followed by Weetabix repelling baby clothes. Now, that might be <laughs> sound trite, but actually we do have water-repellent clothing. That's the man in the white suit, basically, the old uh, Alex oh, Guinness film, isn't it? That's the suit uh, that doesn't going stay. back a little bit. It is. Yes, I only know that because it's currently on the West End with Stephen Mangan. All right. So there oh, you go. Yeah, good. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's what helped me. So last but not least, I did like this, Michael J. Sanders... He wanted to know, in terms of new material, transparent aluminium. And I didn't. And I said to him, what is that? And then he said to me, oh, it was a Star Trek IV film reference, an invisible Star Trek ship. I, told you, <laughs> I think it might be my followers that gets all these crazy <laughs> ideas. But, but I, it was nice to see that people engaged with material science, basically, in terms of and thinking about products and what we need and how, how we get to... I mean, is there, Tim, is there no such thing as a stupid idea? Or, or maybe I should put it the other way, is in terms of what are the most common mistakes that are made between coming up with a material and then you being able to help people take it right through to a manufacturing process? So I think those, those ideas there, this is the, the fantastic thing about innovation. You need to have the, the outlying ideas. So if we just said oh, we're going to make this a little bit better, a little bit faster, that's great. And that does add value and improve things. We absolutely need, need ideas such as the ones you were sent there <laughs> because they do show, well, why not? And it's a really useful thought process to go, perhaps m- many of those we can't do now, but many of the elements that could be, uh, would be necessary to that, each one of those could in itself be valuable. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And just the act of pursuing some of those could throw up some other really interesting innovations. Absolutely. So we certainly find that with uh, the encouragement of the, the of the really creative ideas. And there's a lot from science fiction, and people are always saying, "Ah, yes, science fiction is fantastic. It predicted everything." And go, yep. It also basically just said everything, and then you know a few of those ideas are going to be right. But in some cases, there's a really interesting uh, school of thought which does look systematically at science fiction literature to say, "Well, could that happen? What are the things that are going to stop that happening? How could we overcome them?" So I think this sort of pushing the boundaries is a really important part of innovation and engineering and material science. And do engineers react well to change and to the fact that technology is changing so quickly and we are, you know, immersed now in a sort of digital world or at least a sort of transference towards it? I would say yes, again, uh, generalising massively, but engineers like the new things, they like the, the, the novelty, the thing that's going to change things. I guess where it gets particularly interesting is engineering in a commercial context. We are in an organisation with shareholders that want returns on their investment and the company's got assets which it wants to use wisely. And if you come along with a totally new thing, there's a risk associated with that. So we're very interested in this balance between how does an organisation deal with basically paying the bills, keeping things going, while also doing a new thing. And that's a whole series of issues that go right back to the what's going on in the R&D lab, what they pick up from exciting startup companies outside, how do they 
understand what's going on so they can do something to create value for their shareholders, so economic value, but also social value, addressing a particular need, such as reducing plastic or helping us to reduce CO2 emissions. Can you tell when an an idea right from the beginning is going to make it to the end? Or do you see some ideas that you think, and then you see them evolve and then become sort of front runners, a bit like Bake Off or something like that? Very similar to Bake Off. So no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I think it's it's really hard. I mean, if there was an easy way to do it, you know, there'd be, well, I'd be extremely rich and doing it now. Instead of which, I think there's a series of questions you can ask, which is kind of, you unfold the answer. You say, well, that, that leap over there, that massive leap you're suggesting is huge. That's going to take a long time to get there. But, and we don't know whether you can get there. But do this first and see how that goes. And go, OK, well, what about that? There's a, there's a phrase used from um, the tech startup world at the moment called um, minimal viable product. You don't go, here's my idea. I'm going to need millions of pounds to build it and then get it made. And then we'll send it in front of the customer and see if they like it. That's really, really risky. What you do is, in fact, linking it back to 3D printing, is that you build, you talk to customers and you say what they might want or might need, and then you make something, and then you get just 10 of those or 50 of those from a 3D printer in, in the hands of customers. And they go, oh, well, actually, I don't really want it like that. It's this too difficult here. It doesn't quite fit there. It doesn't do that bit. Then you iterate, and then you can start to say, right, now we know what the customer wants exactly. We can now scale up, get investment for that scale up, and produce the product at volume. Is that something you see from the perspective of kind of the material side and the, the early development of the product? Yeah, that sounds really familiar to me. Actually, funnily enough, going back to the swimming thing, I'm currently one of the user testers for my friend's new swimwear company, and she's asked me to test different materials of swimming costumes, which is incidentally my dream job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you feel far removed from what Tim does? Do you feel at the sort of one end of the not quite factory process or are you at the stage now where you want to work with startup companies yourself because I know you you did do that when you were uh, doing your degree yeah I've had I've had feet in both camps so when I did my first master's degree I was stationed in industry in a startup company there was about six to eight research scientists and me as a little master's student Um, and I really enjoyed the fast-paced aspects of the research it felt really exciting that we were meeting deadlines on a weekly basis and really pushing this technology forward in contrast to academia which is less obviously profit driven and so you are able to be afforded a bit more of a kind of blue sky thinking time and and money and approach and stuff and I think both of those are really valuable because often the the ideas come out of academia and will grow into, in this example, a little startup company, a little spin-off company. I felt that the fast-pacedness of industry was really exciting, and I really enjoyed that. So, yeah, in the future, I'd be really interested in, in going down more of that route. I just need an idea first. <laughs> I was, funny enough, I was just about to ask you, you know, we've heard from people what they would love to have, but what, what about you? What, what, what sort of material would you... You must have thought, oh, I'd love a material that could do... Mm. Well, one of the things that we really struggle with with materials for 3D printing is flexible materials and sort of stretchy things and things that you'd want to wear really we're very good at hard objects hard plastics we can do metals now as well we can do ceramics but flexible materials are difficult because when you 3d print it's also called additive manufacturing so you're building upon 
material that you've already placed down to build up a 3D object. Now, if that 3D object is wobbling around as you're trying to print with it, then that's a problem. So what I'd really like to develop would be a soft material that could be 3D printed, either the material or the process. We might need to change the process in order to do that. But my idea is to 3D print swimming goggles because (laughs) swimmers just find it really hard to find goggles that fit properly. And obviously it has to be watertight and comfortable and soft materials. So that's what I'd really like to do. I I swim about two or three times a week, so I can totally, totally get... Yeah, we've all been panderised. Yeah, and also the um, the the sort of the smart materials again. Mm. I remember probably nearly twenty years ago now, doing a report for Newsnight, which was about these new smart materials. And you know, and again, it's it's a bit like tomorrow's world. Once you do it, it's it's a death knell really for it ever sort of appearing. You say, here's this new crazy thing, smart, and the implication was within a few years we'd all be wearing smart clothes and and they had got to quite a I would say quite a you know a position they were starting to weave the 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 metal that you would need or the connectivity within the fabric of the clothes but I don't know where has it gone I suppose with fashion it's difficult because we live in a world that is driven really by fast fashion I think the economics of fashion is probably driven from price as the main sort of impetus really that would make sense because you would think with everybody now wanting to charge up their phones on the go to be connected to have bluetooth to have this to have that that smart clothing would be here and and yet it doesn't seem to be that's true but i wonder if that's a want rather than a need at this stage which brings us back to tim doesn't it exactly that whole Um, yeah absolutely i think there's something really interesting about the smart material side of things, it has enormous potential. But the compelling uh, business case for it, as it were, to say, we can do this, we can do this at volume, there are enough people who will buy this, and that they'll last long enough, and that they have applications that are clearly, there's clear benefits, not just the features, look, this thing can do this thing, it's, it can do it, and this makes your life better. So I think we're a way off, I personally, I think we're a way off that. I don't know if you agree, Anna. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting question to be asked about whether we should be creating some of these things. So with the example of your um, kettle technology there, I can see at least three or four different materials on that component of a kettle. Now, we spoke about plastics earlier, and it's in the public consciousness now that we are being very wasteful about all of the materials that we use, and so actually, there's there's a bit of a um, there's a bit of a philosophical question. Then, should we be making our products more and more complicated, more, involving more and more materials, involving more and more resources, more and more money, when that means that they're unrecyclable and can't be reused? And that is not a particularly responsible use of materials, especially going forward into the future, when all of our resources are becoming more and more scarce. I think there's something really interesting linked to this with the right to repair coming on, uh, becoming much more a thing in the public consciousness that we know, no, people want the right, the right, they want the ability to repair something. And the way many products are designed, it's just impossible to, it's not, it's either impossible, literally impossible without smashing it, right? Yep. Or it's just, there's no uh, value in, in repairing it because you just open it up and go, well, there's nothing I can rebuild here. And so, I can buy another one for six quid right, or whatever. Right. Yeah. So this, this uh, the, the ethical dimension of engineering material science, I think is really quite rightly coming much more to the fore now. 
So as, a, as an institute for manufacturing, we think very hard about, you know, hang on, are we just encouraging the production of more stuff, which uh, has certain benefits, but actually doing it with a sense of, hang on, what, 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 are the, what are the needs we're really addressing here? And are we doing it in the right way? And for the future, Tim, would you say there is something that you predict engineers are going to need more in the future than they need now? Oh, that's a great point. So we, we've been pondering a lot about what the engineers of the future are going to need. And it'd be interesting to hear what the material scientists of the future are going to need as well. We, we've kind of grouped it into three areas because there seems to be there is some fundamental stuff about engineering, the basic maths, the physics, that isn't going to go away anytime soon. That's always going to be needed. Then there's knowledge about stuff now. What's, what's leading edge? What's, what's you know, a bit overhyped? What are we using now that perhaps I didn't use when I was studying but is used now? But then the third and most important bit is how do we help people learn about this uncertain future? How do you, you do that, that thing where you're helping people learn how to learn for the rest of their life? And that's what's really exciting because you go, well, I'm still adjusting to the world of you know, the internet and social media. You know, and I see what my kids are doing now. Very, very different how quickly they've adopted everything. And so there's a whole new set of values, new set of technologies, new set of behaviours going on there that are going to have a huge effect on the world of engineering, the way we think about things, the way we buy things, the way we use things. And that's the world in which engineers are going to be operating. So we need them to be able to think how can we absorb this new knowledge very quickly and make good decisions? How can we have a sense of critical thinking on all of this? Absolutely to your point, Anna, about, yep, we can do this thing now. We're going back to Jurassic Park now. You know, <laughs> what was the phrase? They spent so much time thinking about whether they could, they stopped thinking about whether they, they should. should yeah. And that's so true, isn't it? And yeah. that's what we want to get into our engineers is, yes, there's amazing things you can do. And the ideas you were pointing out earlier, absolutely fantastic. And there are many things we could do and perhaps should do, but we need engineers and material scientists, if I may, who can, who can do this in a, very, in a way we can't predict yet. Is, is that fair, do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the missing piece in that puzzle is going to be ways of communicating and also channels of communication. Because we can create all of the innovation that we like in our labs and then take it out into the world and people won't understand the need for it or what it does. Or we can create something that we think everybody's going to want and actually we've totally missed the mark. And so what we need to be better at, I think, is communicating, collaborating with users and with other experts outside of our fields. Is this why you do (laughs) stand-up? Well, it's part of it, actually, yeah. I became interested in science communication, and which is associated with engineering communication and material science, a few years ago, through stand-up comedy, I took part in Bright Club and Science Show Off, which are two stand-up comedy nights designed to help researchers distill what they do into a nine-minute stand-up comedy set to a public audience. It's a great discipline, quite a tough one as well. Really tough. At the time, I was doing my PhD on hydrogen storage materials. And that's, I can tell that's you... That's a winner with the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a hard sell. <laughs> But it teaches you communication and it teaches you how to understand your audiences and it teaches you just to get to the crux of it, to not get bogged down in the details. And that's a crucial skill that I've taken through into my professional career. When I was writing up my PhD research, for example, I wrote it like I would write a stand-up comedy set in terms of I put one joke in it, but also (laughs) just making a story of it, bringing in the characters from the literature, seeing what papers were you know, done in the same lab. Why did they do Who were their rivals? Like, bringing some drama into it. And 
yeah, they seemed to enjoy reading it amazingly. So, oh, Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you both. So Anna Pajajski from the Institute of Making and Tim Minchel from the Institute of Manufacturing. Do you know what? I think it's pretty easy to see why you won a, an Excellence in Teaching Award, Tim, from the Royal Academy of Engineering. Thank you both very much for joining me on Create the Future. <laughs> <laughs>